The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. It is nice to be able to, again, have a kid's worship time. I imagine some parents are appreciative of that, too. This morning, as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are stepping into the heart of this book, and our first step immediately leads us to reflect on the nature of new covenant ministry, something that every one of us, if you're a Christian, we all are engaged in in some way or another. It's what his, his calling on us all is, to be in ministry somehow or another, in the new covenant. And a covenant Essentially, to keep it simple, a covenant is a structured relationship that God has set up between himself and his people. And now, we all live, since Christ's cross, in the end, in the period of the final covenant, the new covenant. So what's, so what's this time like? What's new about it? And what does that say about what's come before, about what's old? Well, those are some of the issues that Paul's going to be addressing, especially in chapter 3 going forward. But this morning, we look at new covenant ministry, and specifically how God equips for and accomplishes this ministry. So how new covenant ministry moves forward, and then what? What is it like? What's... What's in the new covenant? What are we ourselves experiencing? And, and especially, what is it that we are ministering to, offering to others? That's what we're going to look at this morning. New covenant ministry, how and what. But let me read verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3, and then draw two observations from it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Two observations. Here's the first. New covenant ministry is dependent on God's equipping. New covenant ministry is dependent on God's equipping. It comes from him. Yes, it comes through us, but it comes from him. That's what we're going to be working towards here this morning, but we've got to kind of pass through a few things to get there. Verse 1 ties in very closely with what we saw last week as Paul anticipates his critics. There are some critics there in the church in Corinth hearing him say, verse 17, 
I'm a man of sincerity. I'm commissioned by God. I'm speaking in the sight of God. I am in Christ. He hears them, hear that, and say, there he goes again. He says, he himself says to us that he's commissioned by God. Did he give you any references? Did he bring any letters of recommendation from anybody else other than himself? Like we did. Surely when these guys arrived in Corinth, these, these opponents of Paul, they came with some letter of recommendation from some religious authority. It was a common thing. Paul himself did it sometimes, we can see in the Bible. When he was sending on someone to another church, he would write a letter. It's not a bad thing, but Paul's saying, surely I don't need a letter to you about me. Nor do I need a letter from you to, to some other church somewhere else because, verse 2, you yourselves are my letter of recommendation written on my heart. Not carried in my pack or in my pocket or somehow, but, but your letter on my heart, which certainly does strike a note of like affinity or affection, but really it's about certainty. Like we might say, I know something in my heart. What he's meaning is, I'm certain in my heart I have this letter, you. And it's not just hidden away in my heart in secret. Everyone everywhere else, he says, can also read this letter. They, they can meet you, they can see you, they can hear about you. You yourselves are all the supporting proof that I need. And how's that? Well, verse 3, because you show by your very lives something unmistakable. The Corinthian believers are believers in Christ. Their lives reveal Christ's work. They reveal Christ's imprint, his changing power on them. And how did that happen? Well, he says, they are a letter from Christ delivered by Paul. Essentially, he's saying, are you guys Christians? Are you Christ followers? Do you believe the gospel? You see the cross as your only hope for forgiveness. Do you know that you need forgiveness? Do you understand that? And do you, do you hate your sin? And do you long for, for the return of the Lord? Yeah? Well, how did that happen? And the only reasonable answer they can give is through what you taught us, Paul. Through what you showed us, Paul. You came to town and you lived among us, and you taught among us, and we caught from you the aroma of Christ. Remember last week's passage? We saw something in you. We heard something off your lips. We, we smelled something, and, and what the aroma was to us is it, is it struck us as life for our life, and we believed. And Paul's point is, exactly. I rest my case. And really, he could reasonably stop there. That should answer the question and blunt the danger. See, it's worth realizing, if you get inside this a little bit, this is not just Paul, like, ticked off and defensive. He's kind of irritated that they're slighting him. There's a danger here that he is importantly and helpfully addressing because Paul really does know that he really is the apostle from God. He really does believe, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
He understands that, and so he realizes to have the church separated from him, setting him aside, doubting him, questioning him in some way or another, is to have the church separated from God and from God's word and God's truth. That's a danger. So it's worth him reinforcing the point. There is real evidence that I am God's chosen apostle the existence of your changed lives, not just change in some random way. People, people's lives change in all kinds of different ways, but change in this way towards Jesus, towards his cross, towards hope in the God who raises the dead. That's evidence to trust me and follow me. That's his point he's trying to make with them to kind of bring them back to him, and that's a point worth noting for the church even today, for us, to realize that. Now, I imagine that, as I say that, that there's, at, at some level here, there's like, like broad agreement in this room. Like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, so let's stop and let's think about that and maybe think down into it just a tad. No one can set aside Paul or Paul's teachings and still have any hope of holding on to God. Though a lot of people try today. Not here overtly, but a lot of people try out there. A lot of people call themselves Christians and set aside Paul or, or some pieces of Paul, particularly when you bump into something that Paul writes from God that our culture strongly disagrees with today. If you read much of the New Testament, you'll, you'll be reading a lot of what Paul wrote and you'll bump into him teaching on sexuality. And you'll bump into him teaching on gender roles. And you'll bump into him teaching on marriage. And you'll realize really quickly, that is not where America is today. And what many people do is say, ah, Paul was a man of his time. He was a little bit misunderstanding some things. We now know better. That's to walk away from Paul. That's to walk away from God. Paul is the apostle of the Lord and what he writes is God's command to us and God's instruction for our life. We need to be really clear about that. He wants to avert that danger of setting aside Paul, that is to set aside God, and he wants to point out, in this passage here, he's pointing out to them a piece of evidence that we can also observe too. Everywhere you look in history, true Christian lives and true Christian churches always come from hearing and trusting Paul's instruction. And from hearing those who are themselves hearing and trusting Paul's instruction. This is how you evaluate a minister. Is that minister passing on to me Paul? Because Paul is passing on to me God. There's the same evidence that we can look at around our lives and back through history that the Corinthians could look at in their own lives and in their own recent history. To hold to Paul and to hold to those who teach Paul is to hold to God because that chain, if you think about that chain right back there through a preacher or a teacher or an evangelist or a missionary who is voicing Paul, who is himself inspired in voicing the word and the will of God, that chain leads us back not to depending on man, but to depending on God who equipped. And that's actually the point I'm trying to make here this morning. 
lead us back to the God who equips. So there's, there's a note there, there's a warning there about not setting aside Paul, but the real point here that I'm trying to emphasize is the God who equips. Let's not turn directly to that. Look at back at the beginning of verse 3, and then especially verses 4 and 5. Notice here Paul's repeated certainty. His just rock-solid assurance. He's got a lot of confidence here. I know you are a letter from Christ delivered by me. That's, that's, that's kind of confident. Verse 3. Such is the confidence that I have through Christ towards God. That's verse 4. What he means there is through Christ, through, through Christ's work in me, in my, my own self, I might not know which ends up what I'm doing, but through Christ's work in me, I look at you, church in Corinth, and realize you are believers and this is a, a Christian church because Christ worked through me and made that happen. He wrote the letter that I delivered. And I, I believe that, I understand that. He reassures me and I'm really confident, so much so that I could stand before the Lord, I'm confident through Christ towards God, I could stand before God and say to God, I am, verse 17. I am sufficient for this ministry. He's laying out there certain. I, I am a man of integrity. I am commissioned by you. He is completely confident, completely confident, verse 5, not because of anything in me. The sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, the God who made me competent. And really that word competent is the same word as sufficiency. You may, you may have a footnote that points that out. I am completely confident, not because of anything in me, but because of God, the God who made me competent. He made me able to do this role. He made me able to carry it out. He equipped me with whatever I need. You guys, you Corinthians, were completely uninterested in Christ. You were unaware of him. You were Corinthians after all. And I, by my lonesome, remember how we started this book out in the book of Acts, noticing how Paul came to Corinth, a team of one, into a massive worldly city. I walked in all by myself, last week's passage, led there by God himself to show off Christ through little old me. And I came in much fear. But I came led by God, and now there is a church here in Corinth. You guys, there, there's a people here who believes. How did that happen? Well, I worked, and I taught, and I prayed, and I preached, and now you believed, and there's a church there. That's a complete turnaround that I did. It didn't just happen. Paul did that. A human being named Paul did that. Had to. And some may be tempted to say, man, Paul, nice job. You are awesome. You are a stud. You are the man. Your evangelism is so wise and insightful and, and effective, and your preaching is, is anointed and powerful. Wow, Paul. That's how it happened. He prayed, he preached, he loved, he witnessed, repeat. For two years. 
And some may be, even us today, we may be able to say, man, I mean, I wish I was like that, but you are awesome. And Paul says, I did that. Not because of anything in me. Nothing in me is sufficient to pull that off. Not a thing. My sufficiency is completely from God. That's the end of verse 5, repeated at the beginning of verse 6, just to make double, double sure. He's the one who made me competent. He alone did indeed make me confident, and I did that by God alone. You feel the tension there? You've you got to hear and feel this tension if we are ever going to hope to step into the role that we are called to, new covenant ministry. Because you've got to hear, I did that. I did that. A human being did that. Because we're human beings. We have to do it. Us. There's, there's a line in, in a book that actually Bryant mentioned this morning. There's a line in the book that Whatever else is around that, I, I won't all vouch for it all. But the line says, God's plan to reach the world is the church. There is no plan B. Human beings, I did that. We must do that. And then we've got to be equally double, triple, quadruple sure, but not of ourselves. There's nothing in us that can make us do that. Not a thing, not a thing, not one thing. It's all from God. He equips and we got to hold both of these things because if you lean too hard on this side or you lean too hard on this side, you'll be either inactive or proud. Those are the, the we got two rocks that we often run into and flounder on one of those two rocks. We've we got a rock of, of inactivity that's largely driven by fear, I think. I'm a guy by myself walking into this massive city of Corinth. If you recall from... The beginning, Corinth is like a combination of New York and Los Angeles and Miami with a little bit of Vegas thrown in. And, and by myself, I'm going to walk in there and plant a church? Are you out of your mind? That is never going to work. I can't do that. Who knows what I would say and how I would do it and what they would respond with. It'll never work. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to listen. There's, there's the one rock of inactivity. If I lean too much into the you must do it, and I think for a second, I realize I can't do that. But if I lean too much into the God does it, then, then I'll just leave it all to him and I'll trust the sovereignty of God. I've got, I've got two, and you could elaborate on the different problems that run on these two sides here. There are two sides where, where we've got to find the, the middle way that says a confident humility. I can do it. I am sufficient. Oh, but not because of me. Because of him. And I really do believe that, says Paul. Confident humility, dependent on God to equip, and leaning into that and expecting it. Sufficient we are, for the work at hand, 100% because God is the one who makes us able. So if we, if we can grasp that and get that and stand in Paul's shoes there, what we'll realize is 
I'm assigned a task that I can do only in Christ. So I can step into this. I can look and pray and speak. I can afford to take the risk because it actually isn't a risk because he can't ever fail to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He can't. He's God. And he has chosen to use me, my mouth, my skin oozing the aroma of Christ. That's what last week says. He leads us along to show off Christ. That's what he's chosen to do. And he will do it. So we can put these things together and say, there's the task in front of us that I actually can trust God to equip me for in the moment with whatever it is I need. And he will accomplish his purpose as it won't go out and come back failed. Okay. So, I mean, kind of the obvious question is, do you believe that? I, I don't think I've said anything so far that anybody would, would disagree with. I don't really mean that. I'm not asking you if you agree with it or disagree with it. I'm asking you if you believe it. Because that's the question I have to ask myself. I agree with this. I'm saying it. I struggle to believe it sometimes. I think that we really should be honest here and say it, that a lot of us struggle to actually believe this, that I can, I can, and I'm called to, and it actually will work out right in God's eyes if I step into this prayerfully, lovingly, and open my mouth. Something correct will happen. It may not be what I was expecting, but something correct will happen. God will work through human beings, God will work. These two things, put them together in a humble dependence. Do you believe that? We should look at that and say, yes, God will equip me. God will equip me and make me sufficient for this work that he's, that he's led me into. I'm, wherever I am, I'm not there on accident. I'm led there by God, and he will equip me to accomplish what he wants we should look at this ministry of the new covenant with confidence, like Paul does, not in ourselves, but in the God who sends and equips. And we should also look at it with a sense of wonder. And I think perhaps this also is another reinforcing piece. There's a great confidence and a great wonder that what we're doing is something sweet. It's not just hard work assigned that God will make me able to do. It's also sweet and precious that God will make me able to do. And that leads us to the second point, actually. Here's the second observation. The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark and privilege of the new covenant. The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark and privilege of the new covenant. So look again at verse 3. 
says, Christ wrote through Paul, but not with ink. He wrote, or literally we could say engraved or deeply imprinted. He wrote with the spirit of the living God. So this, this work of Christ that, that Paul delivered, he's describing it as, using this metaphor of writing. And it's not a tangible writing. It's not physical writing. It's a spiritual work. It's of the spirit. Spirit of God. Not on tablets of stone, he says, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, there's a various mixing of metaphors there. You wouldn't write with ink on stone anyway. And of course, human hearts are not tablets to actually literally be written on. He's, he's mixing metaphors here on purpose to bring three things to mind, to trigger, trigger our, our memories to think of three different things. The tablets of the Ten Commandments, that's one. And then the prophetic promises in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 34, and Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. So three things there that he's kind of surfacing that we need to understand if we're going to see what's so good about this new covenant that we are living in and then expressing and offering, ministering to other people. It's, it's a covenant that's very good and sweet and precious, but we've got to understand three things here if we're going to see what's precious about it. So first, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Engraved by the finger of God, and there's two tablets, you know, one for the people, one for God. So all Ten Commandments would be on the same stone, not five and five. One to keep with the people, one to keep with God. And God's finger literally wrote on the tablets his word, his law, the good law of God external to us from God for sure it was therefore good and right and true but external to us it's on a rock on a stone tablet that Moses saw and he, and he picked up and he carried and then picture this in your mind we're going to play with this image here a little bit imagine Moses grabbing that tablet and walking up to you with that tablet and pressing it against your chest. And you feel the hardness of it when he does that. And you, you get some sense of the, of the weightiness of it. it it's, a, it's a big rock against you. And you see the seriousness, and Moses is standing like that far from you. You see the seriousness in his eyes. After all, he received this rock from God on a smoking, shaking mountain. And when he tells you about it, you also hear in his voice the sweetness of the promise because he, he holds it against you and says, this also from God, friend. God said, do this and you will live. Do this and it will go well with you and you will live long in the land and you, you will prosper and flourish. So it's heavy and it's weighty and it's serious and it's sweet. And then Moses, pressing it against you, physically, tangibly there, he pulls his hand away. And what happens? The tablet falls off of you to the ground and it breaks. Because it never got in. It only got on you. It was against you, but not within you. 
into your heart. That's the nature of the old covenant. It's requirements and blessings from God. And suppose that you're standing there and you are an earnest and thoughtful and concerned Israelite back in the day, the old covenant. Think about this, because this shows us some of our need for a new covenant, some of the sweetness and preciousness of what's been provided now. But you live in Israel back in the day, and God's law given to Moses, it comes to you, and you hear it, and you hear God's voice in it, and you hear his majesty and his promise, and you recognize the importance of obeying all that God has said. And the spirit of the living God, and we can speak of the spirit of the living God in the Old Testament, because he's the eternally existing third person of the one God. He existed in the Old Testament and before, and he was active and ministering in the Old Testament. We can speak of him in the Old Testament, in the time of the Old Covenant. He exists and he's active in the moment as you, maybe you hear the scribes teach the law of Moses. Perhaps in the temple courts where God uniquely dwelt and God's spirit hovers over that time of teaching and you, you recognize it as good. So what is the spirit doing in that moment? as it comes to you. Well, perhaps the Spirit is reigning over circumstances such that you are actually present in the temple at the time when the scribes are teaching. Maybe he arranged the whole thing. You can read several instances in the Old Testament where the, the scribes gathered the people and they explained to them the law or, the, or they taught or they read it. And maybe the Spirit is present at this moment where you're standing there and he's giving the scribes words that are clear and illustrations that are powerful so that you hear it. And like we read about, you're struck in the heart, you're, you're grieved, you're, you're encouraged. Something happens and the Scripture is clear. You have a mind to understand it and, and the Spirit clears away all distractions and you imagine, you see it vividly, the awfulness of God's curse and the beauty of God's promised blessing. We will live long in the land of milk and honey that is not ours that we did not earn but that God gave to us, provided for us. He is such a good and loving, kind God to give us this and to offer it to us. I want to follow Him. I want to walk with Him. I want to obey Him. That's the spirit of God's work in the Old Testament. On you, the earnest Israelite, sitting in the temple listening to the scribe elaborate on the law. But all of that, at its best, was like Moses, pressing the tablet against your chest, and now then, maybe, as he pulls away his hand, real quick, wrapping you in tape, to hold it there, this gigantic rock. That as you look at it and you hear it and you reflect on it, it's sweet, but it's a big rock stuck on the front of you, a burden to carry. But I want to because it's so good and the promise is so sweet and the cursing would be so bad and I want, I want to. But the aching muscles in my back keep telling me that something's not right about this. Is this what it's supposed to be? Which ironically is how some people who regularly go to church today feel. When they hear and see all these good things coming out of the scripture 
and they recognize them as right and they want them and they want to take part in them, but it just feels heavy and challenging, like a task or a job. Some people who regularly come to church but are not yet Christians. They bump into what's good and it's a burden to them that they want but can't. How long can I carry this? I don't know much longer. That's life under the law. That's life under the old covenant. Fundamentally, it's taking something good and right and tacking it onto the outside and not renovating or renewing the inside. It's the ministry of command, the ministry of letter written. On a tablet in front of you, stuck to you, fastened onto the outside, and the end that just produces, eventually your muscles will fail and you will fall. It produces failure, it produces sin, and it leads to judgment and to death because the internal motivation and the strength to just do it will fail. Something better is needed. Verses 3 and also verse 6 are meant to remind us of those stone tablets and the old covenant and also to remind us of a promise that was to come laid out even in the old covenant because the old covenant is built to make us feel this and realize this and say, something's not right. We need more. Uh Uh-huh, more's coming. That's where Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 come in. The prophet Jeremiah delivered the clearest statement about a coming new covenant that would not be like the old. This new covenant would be spiritual. It would be of the Spirit, completely of the Spirit. It would dispense with applying the law externally and instead would write the law on our hearts on fleshly tablets. Jeremiah says, A time is coming when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with the fathers at Sinai. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and they will all know me from the least to the greatest. They'll know me, not just know about me, know me. Relationally commune with, unite with me, intimately, personally, I'll know them at the heart level. That's Jeremiah promising a coming new covenant. God then now doing a great work in the heart of people like Ezekiel alludes to. I will give you a new heart, God says in Ezekiel, and a new spirit I will put within you. That's a new human spirit. I'll give you something different inside. How? He continues, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I put my spirit within you, not the spirit around you or over you or occupying the temple courts where the scribes teaching. I put my spirit actually inside of you and move you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel 36. God is going to do a new work. He says, centuries before. I'm going to do a new work. I'm going to act not around you or over you. I'm going to act 
inside of you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And there's no longer going to be any taping of the law to the outside of you. There's going to be a writing of the law inside of you that's going to make you, I'm going to, I'm going to move you, not just tell you that you should, I'm going to move you to follow. I'm going to equip you to move you to follow my decrees. I'm going to do a work in you. God says that. And that'll make you different inside a new spirit. I'm going to take more than just a good word. I'm going to press it into you so that you become increasingly different. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm going to make you different. So what happens in you is you become actually more like me. I'm going to make you more loving and more joyful and more peaceful. I'm going to make you more patient and more kind and more gentle and, and better self-control. I'm going I'm to make you, I'm going to grow some fruit in you and make you a different person. which is the person that you're supposed to be, the person that you were made to be, the person that thrives and flourishes. It's real life. I'm actually going to make you a real image bearer of God, equipping you so that when you walk down the street in some city somewhere, you'll smell like Jesus. And what will come off your lips will be like Jesus. I'm going to do that in you. Sometime in the future when the new covenant comes. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It happened. Christ went to the cross, a sacrifice that made a new covenant which would have, if they were thinking, would have sent their minds running back to these three elements and they would have thought, oh my goodness, what a privilege. We've been waiting for centuries to untape the stone and you're actually gonna put it inside of us right now. Write it on our hearts right now. Change us right now, a new covenant. Uh huh. And you will know me, every single one of you, you will know me not mediated through the leader, you will know me. From the least to the greatest. I will remember your sins no more. For sure, that's good. But that's so that you'll know me and be changed. I'm going to do that. The new covenant. He changes us on the inside and gives us fellowship with the Almighty One. This is what you and I experience now, and even more so, this is what we are offering to others. We are ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. By the letter of the law, he doesn't mean the exactness, he means the old covenant. We are not ministers of the old covenant, we are ministers of the new covenant. Sometimes, some of our problem is we actually think of ourselves as being ministers of the old covenant, that we're trying to walk up to somebody, tape a law to their chest, and convince them to carry it, and we know they won't want to. Who wants to do that? I don't like doing that. But I'm supposed to convince you. 
No. What we are walking up to offer people is the ministry of the Spirit who gives life. We are walking up to minister, to to offer to people something that inside of them will make them different and really fully legitimately human. Will make them right and will bring them forgiven into communion so that they know the living God as a friend and not as an enemy. We are ministers not of a burden that produces death, but of the Spirit who produces life. We're ministers of the new covenant that we live in and enjoy ourselves and are offering up to people, all of whom are weary and heavy laden, and we're saying to them, here's where you find rest. Here's where you find changed life. Here's where you find communion with God. Here's where you find joy. Which is a sweet privilege Do you know the privilege yourself? Would you walk into the room and like the person, remember last week, who's eaten a lot of garlic recently, they walk into the room and you just eventually notice that. Would you walk into the room and eventually people would notice, it smells like Jesus. Smells like joy. Smells like life. Tell me, what's the reason for the hope that's within you? Would that happen when you walk into the room? It, it will. It will happen if you experience this yourself, the new covenant and the spirit living in you to change you and help you commune with God in person. You, you will experience him Lean into him. Trust him, not your own ways. Trust him. Walk filled with the Spirit of God, which is walk given over to him. Walk looking to him. Walk dependent on him, not independent of him. This is a massive way that God equips us to be the aroma of Christ. And walking in with the Spirit, in communion with him, pray and speak in Christ. We have to, in him. This is life in the Spirit. This is new covenant ministry. It's what we experience ourselves and joyfully get to commend to others for their joy in Jesus too. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.